You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading from the, for this evening is from Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall, come not, shall not come near him, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tables of stone with the law and the the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron said, Her are, are with you. Aaron and her are with, are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up, to the, went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray now. Lord, we believe that blessed are those whose way is blameless, yet we don't feel blameless. We know that we ought to walk in the law of the Lord, and yet we don't walk well enough in the law. And we know that blessed are those who keep your testimonies, who seek you with their whole hearts, and we don't seek you with our whole heart, who also do no wrong, Lord, those are blessed, and they walk in your ways. And we want to do that more, all these things we fail at, but we want to do them better. We want to learn from you. We want to pursue your word and keep it diligently. Oh, that our ways may be steadfast in believing and keeping your word, O Lord. Then we shall not be put to shame when our eyes are fixed on all your commandments. We will praise you with an upright heart, Lord, when we learn to trust your righteous ways. Thank you that despite our failure to trust and obey, you promise to never forsake us. Lord, we are hungry. Will you feed us? We are thirsty. Will you satisfy us? And will you teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So my name is Clint, uh, just one of four pastors here at Christ Church. Uh, I'm not normally the preaching pastor here, but today I'll play the preaching pastor. Normally it's Nathan, as many of you already know, but it was my joy to be able to spend more time in the book of Exodus, in the chapter 24 that we're on this evening, in order to help us as a church and as a people understand God better believe God more, live for him more. I'm usually the one leading the order of service or the liturgy as we call it. And I'll be honest, it's 
It's a temptation when leading the liturgy, when preparing or when actually walking through it with you all. It can become a temptation over Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to just sort of slip into a rote rhythm at church, is it not? And if that's a temptation for me, it's a temptation for you, I'm sure, all the more. We forget so easily, we forget that there is content and design with so much rich purpose in what we do here week in and week out. And if we're not intentional to think through that, intentional to remind ourselves of that, we can slip into our own rote rhythm. So that's why I think it's very well-timed by our God to bring us to Exodus 24 right now, especially as we gather in corporate worship, and especially as we look deeper into the interaction of God and his people assembled in his presence. So spoiler alert here, I think that Exodus 24 is the first gathered church worship uh, worship service ever. And I think it's here by design to establish for us how God initiates and interacts with his people and how we ought to interact with him, especially, especially, yes, on an individual level, but especially as the church gathered as his people. And I think this passage and our corporate worship service each and every Sunday resembles very thoughtfully from our God an idea of a wedding. And I'm going to seek to try and unpack that for us here as we study through Exodus 24. It really is, Exodus 24 really is the beginning of what God told Moses to go and ask Pharaoh for toward the beginning of the book of Exodus. He said in Exodus 7, go and ask Pharaoh, say, let my people go so that they may come and worship me in the wilderness. And if you're willing to track with me through this wedding and marriage motif, it's as if Jesus, or sorry, as if God says to the people, since they didn't know Jesus yet, as as if God says to them, let my people run away with me that I might marry them in the wilderness at the mountain. Now, obviously, this is a spiritual wedding, a spiritual marriage to be, not a physical one, but it's going to be an outdoor wedding, which is nice this time of year. God is ready. He is ready to formalize this sacred spiritual relationship with his people. He's ready to tie the knot. So what has been broken historically and distant now feels like it's being fixed and brought near. What is foreign is beginning to feel familiar and familial. The outline that I see here in Exodus 24, and I want us to sort of hang our thoughts on as we unpack this chapter, goes something like this. First, God calls his people. Second, God covers his people. Third, God communes with his people. And finally, fourth, God closes the curtain on his people. So first, God calls his people. This is in verse 1 through the first half of verse 4. It says this, Then God said to Moses, Come, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and, and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. Come and what? Worship from afar. Worship. Come and worship. Moses alone, verse 2 says, shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Let me pause there. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful that our God is a speaking God, a talking God? Boyfriends or suitors who don't talk much, they're lame. Get rid of them. You need a communicator, don't you? God is not this silent Sam that sits on the shelf He's not a a tree that sways in the wind only or or a sunset that just inspires us quietly taking our breath away. He's not even a mountain stream that babbles all day long. Rather, God has spoken in this creation, in the existence of all these things. He speaks clearly, bragging about his creative power, yes, passively through creation. But more than that, So much more than that. Our God actually speaks tangible, understandable words. And we ought to be glad for that and thankful for that, especially with regard to our relationship 
to him. He uses plain, old-fashioned words directly spoken to his people. Imagine that, a significant other communicating clearly his intentions right up front about what he wants. And God's first words here at the mountain are, come, come and worship. Come and value me above everything else in the whole universe. Everything you value is less than me. Here we see that sinners are welcome. Welcome to approach God, but in limited fashion and with careful calculation. God invites Moses, the prophet, his brother Aaron, the future priest, his sons, the other future priests, and, his, and, and, and all these 70 representing rulers of the people. God's initiative to these leaders is an echo, though, of God's call to all people of all time. Come, come, worship me. He calls out in creation, yes, again, passively, I'm here, I designed it all, I'm the root cause of everything that you know and care about. God calls out inside of us too, quietly in our conscience, this world is broken, and the brokenness has infected your soul. And every Sunday we meet here, we kick off our service with what? With words from God, calling us to know and to worship him. Every Sunday, I, I jump up here, or, or Ryan does, or Kyle, or Nathan even, and, and we rattle off the very first thing. We rattle off a laundry list of the richness of God's character and power and glory. Why? To compel us all to get our worship started with how big and great and wonderful God is. And God is calling us every Sunday through that, every day really, through His Word, to a clearer understanding of his value in our hearts and our minds. And he's calling us to subject all other things, both inside of us and outside of us, underneath his greatness and goodness. That's how we get started in worship. It's as if he's saying, be my bride, Israel, in Exodus 24. Love me the most, starting now on this mountain. Be my wife, though, starting this Sunday. Christ's church, love me the most, starting now this Sunday. Be my forever Clint, friend, Clint, Chris, or Byron, or Gail, or Raybo. Be my forever friend starting today and starting tomorrow and starting the next day. Start every day. Come and worship me. And we know, we know that even as God calls the people, he also limits them. It's not for Everyone in this context, come and worship in this party necessarily. It's not allowed to come near. Not everyone's allowed to come near, and that should trouble us a bit. Why? Because there's a huge problem that lingers in the people of God. Our perfectly sinless God and an utterly sinful people cannot relate safely without proper mediation. It's like the sun in all its glory, from a distance is very good for us and mildly warm for us. But up close, it is 10,000 degrees of matter-melting, body-incinerating glory. And so God has called his people to come and worship. But there is justifiable tension here. A force field of not heat here, but righteousness and perfection, keeping the imperfection of people at a safe distance for them. We should feel this tension personally. How can I, how can I, having sinned, not just in the past, but in the past hour, in the past few minutes, truly approach a perfect God without being consumed and destroyed instantly? So when we gather on Sundays, what do we do? When we're called to worship and we consider the majestic power and wonder of God, we bow our hearts. We do this through song and praise, recognizing his glory and goodness and greatness. But even then, we feel our lingering uncleanliness, our lingering sinfulness, which compels us to do what? To confess our sins to one another and to the Lord, to recognize it out loud that we have fallen short of God's design and glory. Thankfully, God is willing, in this context specifically, somehow to set aside one man's sinfulness in order to allow him to come nearer than most without being destroyed by his moral 
perfection. Someone here had to safely meet with God and then safely meet with the people. And it's clear that God chose Moses for this unique task at this point in the history of God's people to mediate this relationship, representing people to God and God to people. So the first thing God said was, come and worship. The second thing God said, the first thing he said to Moses, tell the people, come and worship. The second thing he says, through Moses, having established this safe distance between the people and himself, God now sends another message through his messenger back to his people to communicate his word and his will. Exodus 24, 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. So it's not just this random words and random rules. Uh, This second statement of God to his people um, are, are, are are Moses basically reciting the Ten Commandments, that's the words, the Ten Words, as we've been calling it for some time now through our uh, series in Exodus, and it is the, uh, that's in chapter 20, so the Ten Words, Moses essentially recites the Ten Commandments to them, chapter 20, and then he goes on and says verbally or orally from recollection and with his time with God, he says chapters 21, 22, and 23, what will later be called, even in this passage, the Book of the Covenant. Just a quick summary of chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23 would go something like this. From God, dear people, I rescued you. Now you trust and obey me, and I'll be with you forever. So how did the people respond once Moses came from God's presence and spoke the words and the rules, the the, the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. It says in verse 3 there, the second half, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So finally, finally he puts pen to paper. The people hear God's terms of the matrimony, with them, and they give their verbal, we do, or we will. And Moses says, okay then, give me a pen. I'm going to write all this down as a permanent record. Everything up until now has been oral from Moses to them, words of God, stories of, of his glory passed down through generations. But finally, God is having a man write, an imperfect man write his perfect law down so that generations after might read it and see it. And this sets that precedent that, that, precedent that God will speak his perfect word through imperfect prophets, through imperfect messengers, through imperfect apostles, through imperfect Peter, through imperfect Paul. And that word from God ought to be read from and explained to God's people wherever they are and wherever they gather. And this is why we do this every Sunday. We read from God's perfect word. We ask an imperfect man to get up in front of the church and read and explain God's perfect word. And having heard God's word, it is right. It is good for God's people to join voices and to declare our intentions of faith and our intentions of obedience, which is why we do that here every Sunday, both in our profession of faith and in our songs to one another and our songs to the Lord. Friend, don't just go through the motions each Sunday. If you're married, did you go through the motions of your wedding rehearsal? Or are you just standing there like, can we just get on with the real thing? No, hopefully you paid really close attention because the real thing's coming. The fulfillment of what you're practicing is coming and that's what we're doing here. This is, we're practicing for eternity here. So hopefully... Hopefully, church is not becoming this rote rhythm for any one of us. Hopefully, you see this as as building towards something, as building toward the forever presence and the forever wedding that we will experience with God one day. So the first, God speaks to his people. He calls to his people. And then second, number two, God covers his people. This is where things get a bit weird. Exodus 24, the second half of uh, verse 4 and following says this, Moses rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar 
Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Yeah, right. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So God's messenger, Moses, is now doing God's bidding by preparing God's bride for the wedding ceremony and its climax. And this is his bidding. Make up some pillars that represent the people, then sacrifice some animals, you know, the really, the really valuable ones to these roamers in the desert that could ensure life and sustainability for years. Those, yeah, those. Have them sacrifice those for me, the hard-to-get kind. Make it clear by your most valued treasures on earth, your livestock, that give you and your children life, that I'm worth more than anything you have. It's as if God is saying, I've shown you how serious I am about you. Now, now you show me how serious you are about me. I've rescued you. Now I want you to forsake everything for me. I've loved you. Now I want you to see that, feel that, and love me. As for the burnt offering, that thing is gone. 100% all burned up toast. Burnt toast. Nothing redeemable out of the burnt offering. Nothing still edible. Nothing you could reuse whatsoever. A total and complete sacrifice of worship. You're more valuable, God. Here, it's gone. And when God sees it and smells it, it's as if he hears. He does. He hears from the hearts of the people. If they're, do if they're doing it in the right manner, sacrificially and joyfully, he hears from them. God, you are worth more than anything I have. And as Christians, we communicate that same thing when we take the treasures of this world and we say, not how much should I give, God, but how much should I keep? How much should I use on myself and my family? How much can I use to provide Things for families who don't have the very basics to survive. And how much more can I give to those who don't have any access to the eternal truth that Jesus came to die, for their, to die for their sins? So will we, Christ Church, will we burn our money on the altar of God for the good of our neighbor and for the spread of the gospel? Then there's the peace offering. It's a little bit different than the burnt offering. God's like, you know what? I want to share this one with you. Burn up half of it. The other half of it, set it aside. We'll talk about it in a little bit. I'll tell you what to do when we get to it. But first, before you burn anything, drain all the blood out of all these animals. Then I want you to read the agreement to the people one more time. The one you wrote down. Yeah, read it. It's in writing now. And if they vow, if they say their I do again, to keep their side of the agreement, then go ahead and just pour the rest of the blood on them. Which reminds me, are we going to start grabbing cups and just instead of cheersing and drinking? I'm not sure that First United Methodists would appreciate the mess we left behind. Thank you, thank you Lord, that this tradition did not continue on in the New Covenant. Maybe you've heard it said before, when someone is signing a very serious document, should I sign it in blood? Most of the time people are joking, but it all stems from this idea that if the agreement is serious enough, then let's call it what it is, a life and death kind of agreement. Keep it, you keep your life. Break it, and you get broken. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Mankind's sin results in death every time. It results in the death of the sinner. It results in spiritual separation from God, both now and in the life to come. But God, by his grace in the, in the fullness of time, he was faithful. He's willing over and over, even in the Old Testament, to cover sin with someone else's Blood, back in the Garden of Eden, instead of just squashing Adam and Eve and putting them to death immediately as they really did truly deserve, what does he do? He actually kills an animal 
Why? To cover up their shame and their nakedness. So the sin that caused brokenness between him and them and brokenness between each other causes an animal to die and its blood to be shed. And now that God is establishing this new covenant with his people here at the mountain, the blood provision of the animal covers their sin, providing a way for them to be in his presence. But something isn't quite right with this animal blood. Something doesn't quite hit the spot For the rest of the Old Testament, Israel is going to have to keep on racking up those sin charges on this this covenant credit card of animal sacrifices. And the bill's going to grow greater and greater and greater, begging the question, who's really going to pay this bill when it comes due? But again, in the fullness of time, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb to forgive and to redeem his people once and for all by what? Shedding his perfect blood. Not on an altar, not into a bowl that gets spread around on people, but on a cross that gets spread around spiritually to every tribe and language and people and nation so that some might be saved from every single one of them. Romans 3. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Romans 5, we have now been justified. It's just as if we'd never sinned by his blood. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins through his blood. Ephesians 2, we have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, for God was making peace through His blood shed on the cross for us. God is the one who who, who initiates the restored relationship to his people. God provides the peace sacrifice of his son. And his blood is is available. It's available to forgive. It's available to seal anyone who trusts in that blood for their salvation forever. What can wash away My sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And just like the Israelites in Exodus 24, God knows that we as believers, we will still sin. But blood provision, it'll continue to be applied to those who continue to fight sin. Or rather, to be more accurately, The ongoing fight against sin in God's people is living proof that the blood sacrifice has been already permanently applied to you. This is the mystery of the blood of Christ. By the blood we are forgiven for breaking God's law, and by the blood we are motivated and empowered to grow in our ability and desire to keep God's law. Those animal sacrifice credit cards have been traded in for the Jesus blood-bought debit card. The bill is paid instantly every time now. And what higher motivation in that transaction than could be given to us to, to slow our frivolous spiritual spending? Should we sin all the more now that we have this sweet debit card that just never seems to run out? By no means. Friends, we can't be sinless in this life, but we can, we can sin less. Come on, friends, with all of our hearts, with all of our hearts, let's try, knowing we won't be perfect until the very end, but dying to ourselves, trying to be now. Rather than this downward spiral of self-love, we ought to be, as Christians, on an upward spiral Slow, yes, but spiral all the same of self-denial and love for God and love for neighbor. That's what what this is all about, Exodus 20 through 23 and ongoing. We should love God more, love our neighbor more because of what he's done for us. All out of an overflow of that infinite love from God that has landed on us. And that should be made more aware of, that we should be made more aware of every day day, through our own time in God's Word, through our own time praying to Him and crying out to Him. In the book of Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, 
We saw a bit of it in our profession. The author there really unpacks for us, God unpacks for us, how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of our need for blood sacrifice to restore this relationship between man and God. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter of Hebrews 9 now, but I'll just try and aim at the spot here that really uh, uh, applies to and, and unpacks Exodus 24 for us. Starting in verse 15 of Hebrews 9, it says, Therefore Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hear the credit card? idea there. It's been building up in the first covenant, and Jesus is the one who forgave him of that finally. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, or a covenant, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a a, a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. A death had to happen for it to take effect, and ultimately another death had to happen. In, In ancient covenants, when you made an agreement of this magnitude, you, 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 you slaughtered an animal to commemorate it, and, and you agreed, party to party, what, whoever breaks this covenant is going to end up like this animal. You got it? As we continue reading, we see who ended up receiving that end of the bargain in this agreement. It gets flipped on its head in verse 19 of Hebrews 9. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, this is actually Exodus 24, right? By Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself that he had written and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, the tabernacle, which we're going to see in future chapters, and all the vessels used in worship there. Indeed, verse 22 Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Did you hear that? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, guilt remains. Shame remains. Distance, brokenness, lostness remains. Without the shedding of blood, death remains forever. But with the shedding of blood, with the shedding of blood, guilt is removed completely. With the shedding of blood, shame is removed forever. With the shedding of blood, life is given permanently. We are restored to God. Would you like a quick summary of the entire Bible? Here it is. God brings life. Sin brings death. God's blood washes sin, and life with God is restored forever. Memorize it. Remind yourself of it. Live in light of it. And if you're thinking, well, there's got to be a catch here. You're right, there is a catch. And the catch is, that blood does not apply to everyone automatically. So let me ask you the most important question you've ever been asked. Does Jesus' blood cover you? Have you recognized that God is 100% morally pure and holy and set apart from anything else in the entire universe? And that you are 100% sinful. Not that you're as sinful or I'm as sinful as we could be, but that everything, every thought, word, and deed, everything we ever do is tainted and falls short of God's perfect standard. Having recognized your sinfulness, have you fallen spiritually on to Jesus Christ by trusting that he alone is capable of living the life you should have lived, of, of earning God's love and making it actual, actually make sense for you to receive it, and that he alone was capable of accepting and absorbing God's punishment and judgment against sin for you and on behalf of you forever? Friend, turn and trust in this good news. It is good news. This is what it means to be a Christian. Some of you need to become a Christian. Some of you need to become a Christian very soon. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't say maybe next year. Repent and believe now, tonight, 
tomorrow. Let's grab coffee. Let's have lunch. Let's open up the Bible together. Someone you know here wants to do that with you, I bet. I want to do that with you. Any one of the pastors here or the gospel community leaders who are our deacons and their wives, we want to do that with you. We want to show you what the scriptures say. We want you to know that the blood of Jesus covers you for sure and and have that assurance from now until forever. We promise not to throw any blood on you. But we also promise that God's Son will bleed on you and your soul, forgiving every past, present, and future sin from here until forever. Please come and talk with us after the service. Let's go to lunch. Let's grab coffee. Let's talk. So first came love, and then came marriage covenant, sealed in blood so awkwardly. Now comes the post-wedding meal, the reception God communes with his people, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So you remember that peace offering we left off with and we didn't talk about really where the other half went? Well, that burnt offering was all for God and, and the, the, sorry, the burnt offering was all for God and half of the peace offering was for God as well. That was his meal, if you will, the reception meal. But he saves the rest of it for the people to eat. God has hitched himself to a people now. And now he wants to have dinner with his people and celebrate. He's whining and dining his new bride. And this is the most significant meal they've ever had. Why? Because they saw God. They saw God. They actually saw God. And generally speaking, everyone in the Old Testament always expects when they see God to be killed. And even in the New Testament, when people start realizing who Jesus is, God himself, they start getting away from me, go away from me out of fear that they will die. In the book of Genesis, Jacob, after wrestling with someone he realizes later is God, he says, I've I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. And later in Exodus, we'll see Moses begging God, show me your glory. And he says, oh no, you can't see my face. If you do, you will die. No one, he says, can see my face in glory fully and live. So we don't know. We don't know in this context if God uh, hid most of himself, like the Moses scenario coming in, in, later in the, in the book, or if he just made another exception, sort of like Jacob. Uh, somehow, though, somehow the glory of the God, the full intensity of his glory must have been shielded from them, or else they probably would have died and not been able to tell the story. Either way, we see in verse 10 that they saw God, so we need to believe it. We need to believe that they saw God somehow. Then it only describes them seeing what his feet are on, assuming they can see his feet because they see it on that. So there's a couple options here. Scholars like to argue about this kind of thing, but uh, either they bowed down immediately, they're they're on a level playing field with him or surface with him and it's blue and clear-like and they fall to it and they get really acquainted with it. And that's why they're describing it in here. Or somehow mysteriously they're looking up and it's like, it's like the sky and it's clear and it's blue like the heavenlies, the clearness. I, I tend to agree with this one more. That, that that's some sort of like barrier between them and him and they can see his feet up there. But in the end, it doesn't matter a whole lot. The point is, they see God and they survive to tell about it. And significant here that they expected something to happen because the author goes out of his way to say God did not lay a hand on them. He spared them. And more than just sort of seeing him at a glance, it says that they beheld him, which in this Hebrew context means they fixed their gaze upon God. And as that gaze lingered on God, beholding him, they ate and they drank and they communed with their maker. What a special meal this must have been. Physical and relational closeness to God has eluded mankind since our first parents fell in the garden and were banished from his presence. And yet, it is what they and we were made to do and made to experience. We long for closeness 
with one another, familial closeness with one another and with God. When was the last time you sat down for a meal with another person just to indulge in your friendship with them? When's the last time you took a family member, just one of them, to lunch? Looked them in the eye a little longer? Asked them better questions? Or a date with your spouse? Or a nice dinner with a friend? Sitting down for a meal signals so many warm and wonderful things, doesn't it? We're close. We love you. We're friends. You're safe here. You're welcome here. You're wonderful. I like you. You like me, right? We had dinner with Tara Segur this week in our home. And how much, I was, I was reminded by how much relational capital and contentment is built up around a dinner table. And it was so sweet to hear her stories from her recent trip to Alaska for work and then her vacation after that and some time she spent in the Philippines. And just to be able to connect around food is so special. Which is why so many of our gospel communities have food. Some not as good as others. I'll tell you that right now. There's something about walking into a room, into a home, and smelling a good meal, and knowing you're safe there, and you're welcome there. To sit, to nourish yourself, to, to, to rest and let your guard down, for goodness sake, and talk, communicate. To say to a friend, come and sit and rest and eat, perhaps the most hospitable words we can utter, and that we ought to be uttering to one another more and more. And here at Mount Sinai, God is saying that to them establishing his promise to his people, the peace and the friendship between him. It stands in stark contrast to what he just did to his enemies in the Red Sea, does it not? Where he drowned them for rebelling against him and seeking to destroy that which he loved. God's making it clear to his people, trust in me, don't trust in yourselves, and we're good. You trust in me, we're good. You're safe. I want you to sit. I want you to nourish yourself. Fill up your tank. I'm with you, and I'm for you. All of these comforts come with sitting to dine with God. And as Christians, we know from the Apostle John that to truly see Jesus is to truly see God, even more than they saw him in this passage. In his first chapter, John compares Moses' experience with the law to the believer's experience with Jesus, saying this in John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth ultimately came through Jesus Christ, and that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has seen him, and he has made him known to us. And then back up in verse 14, Jesus, God's word, God's essence has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later, John would write this in his shorter letter, 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Is that not the goal? be in his presence and to see him. During his earthly ministry, Jesus himself ate with sinners on purpose to share the good news of his coming with them. He made them his disciples. Then he continued to eat with and share fellowship with his disciples. Are you his disciple? Are you a sinner? He wants to eat with all of us. He wants us to come close. As Christians, our present and future are full of fellowship and friendship with Jesus. We've seen him in the scriptures, and we will one day see him face to face, but not yet. Which brings us to our last point. Number four, God closes the curtain on his people. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. 
And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearing of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This last section really is a transition to the next chapter. And it's full of foreshadowing as to what exactly is going to happen in these next few chapters. God has somehow now, after the meal, retreated from the immediate presence of the elders and now is calling Moses alone to represent the people to him and him eventually to the people. The seven days ought to remind us of what? Creation. When God first established how he would relate to and be in the presence of his people, the 40 days and 40 nights ought to remind us of Noah and the ark and how God, fed up with sin, cleansed the earth and drowned every living thing and started over. Why? So that he might have a relationship with his people, a faith-filled relationship with his people. That's what's going on here. Recreation and a restart with his people. God is starting over with his people yet again. And as he ties the knot with them, he wants to give Moses the written copy, the tablets of the contract that they agreed to, signed in blood, the marriage license, if you will. Now the elders and the, and the, and, and the other leaders and the people themselves cannot participate in this 47-day-long administrative meeting where, where Moses is going to write down all the requirements of how God is going to interact through the tabernacle and the, and the, and the vessels and the lampstands and all the ways in which they're going to have to offer up animals ongoingly. But the parallels to Jesus in this passage should not be missed. Paul says in, the, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God finally and forever will recreate us when we trust in Jesus. So all of these efforts in the Old Testament to restart and recreate ultimately will find their fulfillment and have already for us in Jesus. We are his new creation. You can become his new creation. Then Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So in order for this new creation to actually take effect, there needs to be a mediator. So that's what's going on here too. As Moses goes up representing the people to God and God back to the people, this reestablished relationship between God and man needs a mediator. So does ours. God is limiting access to himself. He's, he's also testing the people. The elders now being left behind, they will have to trust in a God that they can no longer see. They will have to lead others in following a God that they cannot see. And will of the God, will the God who's dwelling in a cloud way up, out of reach, on the mountain, unseeable, will he be enough for them? How will these leaders do in trusting what they've seen and heard and agreed to already, but can no longer see and no longer interact with in the same way? What about us? Will the Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago, will he be enough for us this evening? Will he be enough for us tomorrow morning? Will he be enough for us when we get upset with one another? Will he be enough for us when we want to lose hope? Will he be enough for us when we sink into sadness or fear or worry? Will he be enough for us if we cannot see him? Wouldn't it be so much easier if we could wake up in the morning in that chair over by our bed? He's just sitting there, waiting to talk with us, to encourage us, to cheer us on in the day. He is. He is. He may not be sitting there physically, but his spirit has come. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to leave you now after he resurrected. He said, I'm going to leave you now, but trust me, it'll be better for you because I'm going to send you my spirit. He'll be with you everywhere you go. 
at all times. He will be there to help you remember what I said to you. He'll be there to help you understand the words that are going to be written about me. He will be there to empower you to obey me and love me. He will be there to empower your witness to share the gospel with others. And at the end of time, Jesus will return. There will be another wedding and another meal. But until then, John's words in chapter 20 say this and remind us. Jesus says to to Thomas, who's doubting, "Have have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Until we see him face to face, friends, we come together each and every week and we wait for that huge meal that's coming and we eat a meager meal week in and week out. Let us never forget. Let us never forget that God could have just as easily said, come to the table to receive the just punishment for your deeds. But instead says, come and take. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Eat and remember. Can we keep doing that until he comes? Let's pray now that we will. Lord, you have spoken so clearly to us in your word in this story and most clearly to us in Christ. We know you've covered us in your own son's blood. What a huge sacrifice it must have been in order to make us clean. We don't feel worthy of such a sacrifice. You've made us your friends. You've fed us faithfully. You've gone away, Jesus, in the body, but you've left your perfect presence of your spirit and we're thankful for that. Help us, we pray, to live in a way every day that reflects this restored friendship that we have so much better off than those in Exodus. Help us to eat and to drink and to study and to sleep and to live and to work and to parent and to husband and to wife and to play and to befriend as if we are truly in your presence since we truly are are in your presence even now, Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.